If you have your Bibles, we'll be in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16, uh, all the way through chapter 3, uh, verses 4, and we'll bounce around a little bit uh, in between there as we go. Uh, so we talked the last couple of weeks about joy, I mentioned that earlier. We've looked at what it means to have joy in a world that's full of sin and what it means to have joy in the middle of suffering, how to fight for our joy, um, how God can help us through those difficult times and how he's called us to cling to him in the middle of that. We, uh, we've also looked at Psalm 51 and at David's life and how Satan loves to use guilt and shame and our sin to try and push us away from God and get us to run from God and how God has sent Jesus to die on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be separated from him. And he's given us repentance and he's allowed us to have a close relationship with him so that while we may go through those difficult times when we may, may be sad and, sad and our, our hearts may be broken over our sin, ultimately we're, we're called to be restored to that joyous relationship with God. And then last week uh, we looked at what it means to find joy in the everyday life of a Christian what it means to find joy in Jesus as you go to work, as you love your family, right? As you take care of your spouse, all those things, right? And it's not just a bunch of commands for us to follow, but it's a way of life. It's our hearts being captured by Jesus. And if our hearts aren't captured by Jesus, they will never be able to do any of those things. Uh, we talk about being gospel-centered a lot here. What we mean by that is seeing how what Jesus has done for us is not just save us so that we can spend eternity in heaven with him, but he sustains us so that we can get through this life, so that we can see how Jesus has called us to let him be Lord of every part of our lives. So how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, our tone of voice, right? Our work ethic, the way we raise our children, right? All these things. The gospel has something to say about all of these things, right? Today is no different, uh, that's always our goal, to see how the gospel will change us and is meant to challenge the things that we believe. So this morning we'll be doing that as we look at uh, Colossians chapter 2 and chapter 3. Uh, we titled this sermon, From the Inside Out. Uh, and it's really cool. The book of Colossians is, is an, just an, an amazing letter that Paul writes uh, to these people who are struggling. They've... Uh, They've run into some people who are giving them false teachings. They say that they believe in Jesus and they say that he belie they believe that he died on the cross for their sins and that he, he lived the perfect life, that he, he's paid for their sins with his death on the cross, right? They say they believe that. But then at the same time, they're also teaching them that they need to follow these Jewish customs and it's a weird mix of all these extra rules. So it's not just, hey, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to do all these other things. And if you're not doing all these other things, well, then you're just not as good as us and you're not saved and all of these things that are not true, right? So that's what we're looking at. And what we end up seeing here is how Paul is explaining the difference between what we would call legalism or a works-based faith like, I have to do good, I have to be good, or God won't love me, he won't want me, he won't care about me. We see that, and then we see what Paul shows us is what it actually means to follow Jesus. 
So those are the things I want to look at today. Uh, I'm going to try not to bore you with too much uh, historical context, right? Uh, put you to sleep. But it's important that we hit it a little bit. Uh, so if you can bear with me for like the first 10 minutes, we'll get through that and then we'll, well, we might get convicted. Maybe we'll see. Uh, so I want to read verses 16 through 17 to you first. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you and questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, so kind of went over how they're talking about all these Jewish traditions that they're supposed to be following. It's like, hey, if you guys aren't doing this, well, then you're just not as good as us. That's just how it is. If you're not doing all these other things, then you're just not as good as us. Or maybe you're not really a Christian, right? So trying to break this down, he says, food and drink. Well, he's talking about the dietary laws. There are Jewish customs that they were supposed to follow. There are certain things that you can eat. There are certain things that you can eat, right? Then he says, the festivals and the new moon. The festivals, these were the Jewish celebrations, right? The Feast of Booths, right? The Feast of Light, uh, the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles. Then he says, making sacrifices on the new moon. They were supposed to make sacrifices at the beginning of every month. They didn't make those sacrifices and they believed that their sins weren't atoned for. And then lastly, he says, the Sabbath. And they followed the Sabbath on Saturday. It had to be on Saturday. It couldn't be on any other day. They had to take the day of rest. And we know that none of these things are required for us to do anymore because Jesus came and died, replacing that Old Testament covenant that all pointed forward to him. So, What's happening is that these people who believed in, or said they believed in Jesus and said they believed the gospel were doing all these extra things that really were only ever meant to point forward to Jesus. After Jesus, they weren't meant to continue to do them because Jesus paid the debt for all of those things, right? So Paul's response to these false teachings is to compare all of these Old Testament customs to a shadow and here's what I think is really cool as we start off I think it's a really neat illustration because he's just saying hey everything that you've just talked about it foreshadows Jesus it's a shadow that foreshadows foreshadows his perfect life and death it points to how he took our place and saved us from our sins which were going to separate us from God forever these truths these promises of the gospel, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died for us. These are what shine brightly now. These shine as brightly as the sun. And just like the sun, these promises give us warmth, they give us light, they give us hope, they allow us to grow. That's what the gospel does. It changes us and allows us to grow. While these Old Testament laws, while they were important at one time, they're like a shadow. They would not exist without the sun. And here the sun being Jesus. They don't give light the same way and life the same way that Jesus does. And to top that off, Paul goes into verse 17 at the end and he says, the substance belongs to Christ. So he's saying you're spending all your time, you're spending all your energy trying to follow these customs. You're doing all this work. You're putting in all this effort to be holy, right? But the substance belongs to Christ. So he's clearing this false teaching up by saying this. He says, the substance or with the Greek meaning, the body, 
the church body belongs to Jesus, which means all our hard work, all our effort as the body of Christ is meant to be for Jesus, the one who is the head of the body. This is a reminder for the Colossians and for us to make sure that we don't make the mistake of misplacing our efforts and our time on things that aren't for Jesus. Because for us to follow what these false teachers are saying would be to work for ourselves and to gain our own holiness. So they're trying to do good in order to gain God's favor. That's basically what they're saying. And they're saying that they don't believe all of the things that Paul has just said. So how does that relate to us today? The book of Colossians is filled with good things for us to do, right? When we get into chapter 3, those of you who have read this book, you know. It says, put on the new self in verse 1 of chapter 3. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right, right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. He's saying, watch your mindset. Think about your mindset. Put to death what's earthly in you. In verse 5, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We see that he talks about the Christian marriage and the household, how fathers and mothers are meant to raise their children. We see that he talks about the fruits of the Spirit, how we're meant to have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control, all these things. And if we're not careful, we can end up trying to follow all of these commands so that we can receive favor, so that we can be patted on the back by someone else, so that we can look good in front of other people, or so that we can feel good about ourselves. And what happens is we end up trying to do all these things so that we can be a good person or so that we can be moral, and we miss Jesus. We never experience the person of Jesus. He's saying the substance is for Christ. The body is for Christ. You are for Jesus. You were created to have a relationship with him, not just to work and work and work, He's saying, don't put the work first, put Jesus first. When you put Jesus first, everything else will fall into play. But if you don't put Jesus first, if you don't know Jesus, then you'll never be able to do all these other things that we're gonna talk about today. And that's the first and the most important thing. If you don't know Jesus personally, if you don't fall in love with Jesus and get to know him for yourself, then you'll never do any of these other things because you won't really have a reason to you won't be motivated to. You won't have a desire to. We tell it inside out because the Christian life happens from the inside out. We remember in Scripture where Jesus said, it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, right? And the things that are outside the body that we eat, they don't defile us. Jesus says that because he's here. He came to change our hearts and to change us from the inside out. The change starts with our heart. And then it affects our daily actions and our life and everything that we do and everything that we think and everything that we say. All these things are changed by him. It's not the other way around. We can't just start trying to come in and say, oh, I want to be good now. I want to be holy now. I messed up when I first came to Crossroads because, I mean, like everyone, I was, I was and still am a sinner. And one day, our previous youth minister, he said, hey, you, you've given your, your life to Christ and don't you want to get baptized? And I said, no, no, no. I have some things I need to clean up first. I've got to clean myself up first. I can't get in there and get baptized. I've got to clean myself up. I had completely missed it at that point. No, Jesus was already working in me when I gave my life to him. 
He was already cleaning me up from the inside. He was already changing me. He was changing what I thought was appropriate. He was changing everything about my life. He was changing my goals. He was changing my ideas. He was changing my life plans. That's what he does. He changes all of those things. It's not for you to just say, oh, let me just change this all on my own, in my own power. No, he changes those things first. So that's what I want to continue to talk about today. So when we try to do that work first, apart from Jesus, when we focus just on the commands, we end up saying one of four things. And there's a therefore at the beginning of verse 16. And if you caught that, you knew that we were going to get there eventually, right? We always hit the therefores, uh, me and Rob. So he says therefore, and that ties everything that he's saying into the previous passage of verses 10 through 15. So I'm going to read those to you very briefly, and they should be up on the screen. Verses 10 through 15 of chapter 2 say this. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, so... There's a ton there, but there's four really important things that I briefly want to hit on that we're failing to believe when we, putting, when we put our works before Jesus. So the first is that we don't believe that he has made us clean. We don't believe that Jesus' blood is what actually covers us, what actually covers all of our sin. The second is that we don't believe that we've been buried with Christ and God and raised with Jesus to walk a new way of life. It's only with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that you can be different than you were before. When he says, you've been buried with Christ and you've been raised with Christ, he's saying, because you've chosen to follow Jesus, to put your faith in him, you and your old way of life, that's dead. You don't have to go back to that anymore. You've been raised with him to walk a brand new life. But that only happens if we have faith in Jesus' perfect life and his death. Number three, we don't believe that Jesus completely pays for all of our sinful debt. We believe that for some reason we have to work hard so that God will continue to love us. But no, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he died for all of our past sin, all of our present sin. He died for the sin that you might go commit when you leave here today. The sin that I might commit when I go and I leave out of here today, right? He died for all of that. And we can thank him for that and we can praise him for that and we can love him for that. And that changes us and that stirs us and that motivates us to be different. And the last is that we don't believe that the cross is the ultimate victory and that it strips Satan and sin of its power, which was to separate us from God through the death that they try to bring. Okay. Now, as we move into verses 18 through 19, Paul's going to highlight some other really important things. And as we go through this, He's pointing out all of the dangers that come with us putting our works before God, with us trying to put works 
over God and saying, I have to do good, I have to be good, instead of just saying, no, Jesus was already good for me, and Jesus already lived the perfect life for me. So in verses 18 through 19, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So the next problem that we see is not only that they're worshiping angels, but they're following asceticism, which means that they're basically practicing extreme acts of self-denial, of things that God has just not told them to do, right? They're saying, okay, we won't be married. We won't eat this food. We won't do these things, right? So they are placing extra restrictions on themselves. And in doing so, they're missing out on the good gifts that God would have for them. And as they do this, they develop a terrible case of spiritual pride, which is what Paul means when he says they've become puffed up without reason. So just like many people today, when we say, oh, you know, I don't do that. I don't listen to that kind of music or I don't watch that show. And they say it pridefully and they say it as they look down at you and they say it in a, in a negative way, right? They become proud of their accomplishments, but they have no reason to be, right? And it's not saying that we shouldn't strive for holiness, but that we should evaluate the motives of our hearts, right? Why are we telling people these things that we're doing? Are we telling them to help them and to disciple them and to encourage them and to help them become more and more like Jesus, which is what we've been called to do? Are we telling them so that we can make ourselves feel superior and make them feel lesser than? Because Paul points out here that these, these accomplishments, they mean nothing apart from Christ. Because these accomplishments are tearing down the other members of the church. And they're doing the opposite of what the gospel is meant to do, which is unite us and grow us together. And Paul highlights that here in verse 19 where he says, holding fast to the head. The head of the body is Jesus, right? He says, for whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So being nourished means we're growing. Being knit together means we're united like joints and ligaments. And then he ends here with a promise. This is a growth that comes from God. This is a growth that is beautiful. This is a growth that is meant to happen regularly. However, we struggle to believe that promise and instead we constantly fall back into the ways of the world, into a desire to work hard to get the things that we want. And then Paul continues to attack this type of idea and these types of beliefs in the following verses, verses 20 through 23. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's giving examples there. Don't do these things, don't do that, don't do that. And he says, referring to things that all perish as they are used. So none of these things have eternal value. Saying, according to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul begins here by asking them a question. He asks all of us, if you believe in Jesus and the old you has died, the old way of life has really been put to death with Jesus, then why are you still following the ways of the world? 
And this question would have made them think, it would have shocked them, and I think it shocks us. Because they're saying, well, how am I still following the ways of the world if I'm trying to stay away from sin? If I'm trying to be good now, if I'm trying not to live a sinful life, then where am I going wrong here? It's in verse 23 that Paul, he just answers his own question. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. So they seem like they're wise, but they're promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. And here's the catch. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul points out that it seems like we are being wise and godly, but the truth is that all we're doing is trading one type of sin for another. So Paul says all of your hard work to be a good person and to stay away from sin and doing bad things and instead to try and be moral and do good things like being honest and working hard, having good values, those are all great, but they don't really have any value if they're separated from Jesus. So why do they have no value? Because all of these actions and stuff that they're taking, they don't stop their tendency to fall into sin and to choose a variety of sins over God. So even when we think that we've stopped our sinning and we've become moral people, the text points out that our affections just move from one sin to another. So I want to give you an example of this. We know that gluttony is a sin. So we attempt to stop eating as much. And then we become fixated on our figure and how other people will see us. And we realize that the entire time we weren't really focused on God and not sinning. We were just focused on how other people viewed us, right? It can be as simple as that or it can be as complicated as us removing specific sins from our life and then becoming prideful and judgmental towards others to the point where we no longer show people the love that Jesus has poured out on the cross for us. So here Paul describes the last danger of a works-based faith, and that is that a works-based faith doesn't stop us from sinning. It has no value because it doesn't change our hearts. A works-based faith just changes the type of sins that we commit. We go from doing whatever it was that we wanted to now refraining from those things for our own personal gain so that we can receive a pat on the back, so that we can feel good about ourselves, right? So that we can gain favor and acceptance from man or from God, right? So this is the big one. A workspace faith doesn't really make us moral, doesn't really make us Christian, Because to be Christian is to be someone who believes in the gospel and its power to change our lives, not to be someone who chooses to follow a set of rules. There's a big difference between being religious and being someone who loves Jesus. So I want to highlight this for us. Have you ever noticed how generous people are when they have plenty and how kind people are and willing to serve people are when they're doing well, when they're having a good day, when they're not short on money, when rent's not about to be due, when the bills don't have to be paid? Think about how willing people are to help others when they have the time and the resources and they don't have anything else to do at work. Usually they're more willing to give someone a hand. Now think about how willing people are to help others when they don't have much time, when they don't have much money, when they're swamped with tasks, when there's deadlines coming up at work, right? When they don't have the resources, when the rent is due. 
people do everything that they can in those situations to get out of doing anything for others or anything to go the extra mile. You can forget getting someone to cover your shift or your lunch duty if you're a teacher, right? Or help you get a project done if they have something else going on. So why does this happen? Why does this happen? Because those people who are religious or moral, they do good when it benefits them, right? When you have the outside-in type of heart, you want others to see, or you only want to help when you're able. You want to help when it will make you feel good about yourself, but that's secondary to actually taking care of yourself. But those who love Jesus, they serve and they give generously no matter how little they have and no matter how much it costs them to do so, no matter how little time or strength or money or resources they have, because they know what it's like to be in need, because they were once in need themselves. And their needs were met by a wonderful Savior who gave up everything for them and who paid the ultimate price in order to meet their needs. People who realize that Jesus lived a perfect life and deserved nothing of what he got. People who know that. People who know that Jesus was perfect and that he loves them and that he died and suffered was whipped, was beaten, was punched, and then was crucified on the cross for them and for their sake. Even though he didn't deserve any of that, he paid the ultimate price. They know what it's like to be in need because they had a debt to pay and he paid it for them completely in full. And because they know what it's like to have that ultimate debt paid and to sacrifice it, everything to have someone sacrifice everything for them they're willing to sacrifice for others they're willing to be put in a bind for others because Jesus put himself in a bind for them and when you know that when that hits your heart then you'll be more willing to go the extra mile at work then you'll be willing to be that person who says you know what I can stay late and get this done let me help you This is a wonderful opportunity to show someone the radical, crazy love that Jesus showed me when he lived a perfect life for me and he died on the cross for me. When we believe that, when we know that, when that becomes real to us, we become more and more willing to do those things. Scripture shows this in multiple places. Uh, This morning, I want to briefly read Mark 12, verses 38 through 44 to you. This is what it says. And in his teaching, he said, this is Jesus, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Okay, so catch this really quickly. You have all these scribes and all these Pharisees bringing in all these big checks, right? 
you see the big checks that they hold up, like at the halftime shows, if you make the half-court shot, that's the type of stuff they're doing. They're saying, oh, look at me, look at me. How are they getting that money? It says they're devouring widows' houses, right? So they are going out and they are making money, doing things that are not godly, right? Taking advantage of other people. And then they're turning around and now they're trying to do something good and receive praise for it. And even though they are donating massive, massive amounts of money, they're ungodly people. And Jesus says, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he turns to this widow and he says, she's put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box because they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So how does this relate to what we were talking about? She gives God everything that she has, everything. She says, it's all yours. It was never mine to begin with. You made me, you created me, you died for me. It's all yours. Everything that I have and everything that I am, it's yours, Jesus. I don't own it. You own it. You're Lord. That's what it means to have him as Lord of your life. We trust him with everything that we have. He says these other people, they might might give a lot. They might give a lot. But they're not giving everything and they're not doing it because they love me. They're doing it so that they'll receive praise. She walks by, gives everything that she has and she's a widow, which means that she's not well taken care of. At this time period, if you were a widow, you were struggling. You were poor at times, you were homeless. Remember, that's why in Acts, they got together and they got those, these godly men together to take care of the widows. And yet she's here trusting that God will provide. And I think there's something really important for us to take away from that is that if we're willing to be changed from the inside out and to give God everything that we have day in and day out, to give others the same love that he's given us, he'll fill us back up. He'll take care of us no matter what happens. So, so far we've seen five major problems with a works-based faith. With a works-based faith. If you're taking notes and you'll write these down, I'll give them to you really quickly. Number one is that a works-based faith causes us to become judgmental. And that's what we see in verse 16. And we know that God is called to be the ultimate judge, not us. Number two, It makes us and others feel disqualified, which is the opposite of what God wants. He doesn't want us to feel like we can't draw near to him when we fail to follow every rule that we see in Scripture. And he certainly doesn't want us to make others feel that way. Number three, a works-based faith causes us to become puffed up or prideful. This turns people away from God. Number four, it stunts our spiritual growth. And it causes division in the church. Number five, a works-based faith doesn't stop us from sinning because it has no value. It just changes the type of sins that we commit. Right? It might make us moral, but it doesn't really make us Christians. It doesn't really change our hearts. So, with all that being said, we've looked at all these things. How do we really get there? How do we have a changed heart? How can we be changed and transformed by Jesus? Colossians chapter three has a couple things to tell us about that. Verses one and two say, if you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Saying we've been raised with Christ. This means that we've given our lives to Jesus, that we believe he's the son of God. This also means that we had to have died with Jesus, right? We've died to our old selves. We've been raised to walk a new life, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So we believe the gospel. We believe that Jesus has lived a perfect, sinless life. And now we seek him day in and day out, and we set our minds on the fact that Jesus is the ultimate thing that we could ever have in this world. There is nothing more important than Jesus. That's what he's saying. And this is an active, lifelong process of setting our minds on Jesus day in and day out, getting up and saying, God, help me to focus on you more than I focus on anything else. Help me to live for you, not for anyone or anything else. That's something that has to happen constantly, constantly. Another thing that helps us is in Colossians 3, verses 16 through 17. And those verses say this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual, thong, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what's he saying? He's saying be filled with the word. He's saying in order to actually be changed from the inside out, you have to be in the word so that you can know God. You have to spend that time with him on your own Day in and day out. Seek God. Know God. Don't just seek him and know him, but also spread that word to others. He says admonish. Teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and warning others about who he is. Letting people know the wonder and the beauty of who he is. In verses three through four, they give us our next answer. He says, for you have died in your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This verse reminds me a lot of Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 20, where he says, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now that verse is crazy, and it almost sounds like a contradiction, right? He says, I've died, but the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. No, it's not contradicting itself. He's saying, I'm not who I was before. Why? Because my life is in Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. In the same way that Jesus suffered and was crucified on the cross, I am suffering going through the process of sanctification. That old me and my old way of life, the way I thought, the way I spoke, it was like a child. And I am growing into mature Christianhood. I am growing and learning what it means to be like Jesus. What I love about both of these verses, especially verse four, it says, when Christ who is your life, he, just, he doesn't just say, hey, Jesus is the one who gives us life. He says, no, 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 Jesus is your life. No one and nothing else will ever be as precious as Jesus to you. He says, don't have any other idols. Jesus should be your life. There should be nothing else that's more important than that. So I think those verses are very, very tightly knit together. 
And as we wrap up today, I want to give us some, some very active and I, I believe helpful examples of how our hearts have to be changed and how they can only be changed as we fall in love with Jesus and as we seek to know Jesus for ourselves, right? We have to see Jesus as our motivator. We have to see Jesus as the one who changes our hearts and our way of thinking because we're constantly flooded with ideas from the world, right? Just like the Colossians were. They're tempted with all of these wrong ideas and beliefs about what they should be doing and about how they should be living. And there are a couple of great examples, especially in verses 12 through 13. Uh, of Colossians. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I want to look at humility, one of the things that he, that he talks about in there. The Christian's ability to be humble in a world that is not humble, in a world that is filled with pride, and honestly, in churches that are filled with pride, right? Christians are only able to be humble, to practice this discipline that he's talking about, because we look to Jesus, the Son of God, who has Philippians 2, 6, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus being the Son of God, right, part of the Trinity, equal to God, says he did not count equality with God. He was humble. The Father said, I want you to go to earth. I want you to live a perfect life. I want you to live among man. And then I want you to die on the cross for their sins. That's what I want you to do. And Jesus said, absolutely. That's what you want me to do? I'll do it for you, Father. Because I love you like that and I love them like that. We will never be humble until we are able to see how Jesus is the ultimate picture of humility and how Jesus, who was God, who is God, humbled himself for us. And we don't deserve that, right? Think of the lowest and most insignificant thing that you can think of. You can think of a speck of dirt, right? Because that's how God should view us. But he doesn't. He views us as precious. We sin against him and we hurt him and we grieve his heart and we break his heart. And he sends his own son to die on the cross for us, to pour out his own wrath on his son so that we don't have to experience that wrath, so we don't have to be separated from God like that. That's how humble Jesus was that he would come and that he would serve his father and serve us and that he would leave the ultimate kingdom where he had perfect fellowship with God and that he would come to earth where people didn't get him and they didn't understand him and they kept doing the wrong things and he dealt with it and he loved them anyways. The last thing I want to point out is compassionate hearts. I know there's a lot more there. There's a lot of things that we didn't get to cover in these verses. I think if we start with humility and compassionate hearts, at least that's something, right? So we've talked about compassionate hearts before. I think about, I want you to think about your dating relationships, right? When you start dating, or some of you, some of you are who are married, you started dating at one point, right? Especially the guys. When you started dating, you're nice. You're really nice to 
to a woman that you're dating. Women, hopefully you're really nice to the man that you're dating, right? And then at some point, you make the decision to say, I, I know I really want to marry this person. I, I better step it up. I better make sure I'm doing, doing what's right. And then you propose, and she says yes. And then do you just stop being compassionate? Do you just stop loving them? Do you stop trying? Do you stop caring? I hope not. I mean, maybe some people do. I mean, we hope. We hope that doesn't happen, right? I remember we were talking to Ryan and Erica at a gospel community a while back, and, and Shannon is talking about how he cleans the dishes for uh, his wife, Jennifer. And then Erica says, well, that never happened for me. And she's messing with Ryan. It's like, well, I, I wish you'd clean the dishes for me. What's funny about that is that we know, we know that Ryan loves Erica, right? I'm sure that he's compassionate towards her in other ways. That's just not one of the ways that he showed her that. But that doesn't mean that that compassion ever fell off at any point, right? So we're talking about compassion, right? And we get married a lot of times because we love that person and there's emotional security there. We know that they've got our backs no matter what happens. And we love them and we pour out and we pour out, right? That's what God does for us. He has loved us and poured out and poured out and poured out. He has us in his hands. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for us so that we would never be separated from him. You are secure in him. You don't have to work hard to be loved. You don't have to work hard to be loved by anyone else. You don't have to try and gain the love of anyone else or do anything special. Because at the end of the day, God loves us the same way that we are attempting to love one another. But he does it in a much, much better way. Not only does he do it in a much better way, but he motivates us and changes our hearts to do it in a better way, right? Because those of you who believe in Jesus, if you remember your relationships before you believed in Jesus and you had a close personal relationship with him, you can think about how terribly you treated people in your relationships, right? And hopefully you can look at how Jesus has changed you in the way that you think about sacrifice, Right? We are now willing to sacrifice for others and to love them and care for them in a way that we would have never done before because we understand that Jesus has loved us and cared for us and sacrificed for us so that we could be loved and so that we could never be separated from God. So now we love and we sacrifice for others. We clean the dishes for our our wives or significant others because we know that we are loved by God and that Jesus has cleaned us and it's nothing for us to clean the dishes for them to make their lives easier. Right. So, as we close today and you reflect on these things, I would ask that you make sure that you know Jesus is the greatest treasure of your life and that you are not trying to work hard to gain his love and his acceptance and his favor, and that you don't look for love and acceptance and favor anywhere else. Not from another man, not from another woman, not from a job title, not from a raise. Because Jesus 
already died for you so that you could be loved and accepted and cared for in a way that you will never be loved and accepted and cared for by anyone or anything else in this world. And that is something that when it hits your heart, it will change you. Let's pray.